By the shores of old Lake Michigan, where the hawk winds blow so cold, an old cub fan lay dying. In his midnight hour, the toll. Around his bed, his friends had all gathered. They knew his time was short. And on his head, they put this bright blue cap. All-time favorite sport. Told him it's late, it's getting dark in here. And I know it's time to go. But before I leave the lineup, well, there's just one thing that I'd like to know. Do they still play the blues in Chicago when baseball season rolls around? When the snow melts away, do the cubbies still play? In their ivy covered very old ground. When I was a boy, they were my pride and joy. But now they only bring fatigue. Sit home in the gray, the land of the free, and the doormat of the National League. Tell this friend. You know the law of averages says anything will happen that can. But it says, but the last time the Cubs won a National League pennant was the year we dropped the bomb on Japan. The Cubs made me a criminal, sent me down a wayward path. They stole my youth from me. That's the truth. I've forsaken my teachers to go sit in the bleachers in flagrant truancy. One thing led to another. Soon I discovered alcohol, gambling, dope, football, hockey, lacrosse, tennis. But what do you expect when you raise up a young boy's hopes and then just crush him like so many paper beer cups year after year after year after year after year after year after year. He said, you know, I'll never see Wrigley Field anymore before my eternal rest. So if you have your pencils and your scorecards ready, I'll read you my last request. He said, give me a doubleheader funeral in Wrigley Field on some sunny weekend day. No lights. Have the organ play the national anthem. Then a little na 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 na, hey hey hey, goodbye. Make six bullpen pitchers carry my coffin, and six groundskeepers clear my path. Have the umpires bark me out at every base in all their holy wrath. It's a beautiful day for a funeral. Hey Ernie, let's play too. Beautiful snow. 
from the prevailing 30 mile an hour southwest wind. When my bags remain still flying over the left field wall, will bid the bleacher bums adieu. I will come to my final resting place, hot on Wayland Avenue. The dying man's friends told him to cut it out. They said, stop it, that's an awful shame. He whispered, don't cry, we'll meet by and by, near the heavenly hall of fame. He said, I've got season's tickets to watch the angels now. That's just what I'm going to do. He said, but you, the living, you're stuck here with the cubs. So it's me who feels sorry for you. Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, folks odds up. Starboard thrust 22 degrees. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio show that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Want to welcome all of you into this week's show, Backwards k is available on all platforms. I'm talking Google, iHeart, Stitcher, Samsung, Podbean, YouTube, etc., etc. If you're a Spotify or Apple user, uh, please rate review as you see fit. I ain't scared. I mean, why should I be? My content is fire, and it will always be free. I will never send my audience a bill for this dope content like I see so many other podcasters do. I'm in it to win it. I'm going to show up every week with my Calvertin Iron Bird work ethic, ready to give you my best. I don't care about birthdays, Thanksgivings, Christmas, shit. There's like, you know, truly like six people in my inner circle that I completely trust. That means I'm coming through every Tuesday with that smoke. 
I'm not here on a Tuesday laying the smack down on these topics, you better send out an APB. Call the morgue and hospitals. Uh, if you don't have any luck there, somebody better call your local central bookings because I'm consistent like a Swiss, uh, Swiss timepiece. Nothing in this world comes before my show as I'm on a mission to spread the gospel of baseball around the globe. And I'm committed to this all the way down to my bloody demise. You can find the show on Twitter at backwards underscore K underscore podcast. Our YouTube page is the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network page. You can find these backwards K-Pod audio files there as well as some of the interviews I've done You know, in the last couple of years. Guys like Willie Mays, Aiken, uh, Ron Robinson, so much more. So if you get a chance, subscribe and check it out. Now, before I get started on this week's topic, I got a lot of messages about last week's Sandlot Movie Review. And I really appreciate all the support and warm, kind words. I did get a message from Matt down in Georgia. He writes, Snake, I have officially listened to the Sandlot Movie Review episode twice. I can honestly say it's the best one you've ever done, dude. I loved it. We'll probably listen to it again today. Uh, any thought of doing more reviews? Your podcast has become must-listen status. Hey, uh, you know, thanks, Matt. I appreciate that very much. After all the great messages, I will definitely do more of these. Uh, believe it or not, I have the calendar loaded completely full of content till around November. So I think around then I'm going to do a review of the Penny Marshall Classic, A League of Their Own. That way I can do the review and also give, uh, you know, a little historical count of the league. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that around November. And uh, thank you again, Matt. And the reason why I haven't gone beyond November is because I'm keeping a close eye on Miggy and Albert Pujols. I know Albert has said this is it for him. This is going to be the last season. Uh, Miggy has not said anything like that. But, you know, it's worth watching. Uh, as soon as these guys finish writing their playing career stories, I'm going to bring those stories to you. And speaking of Miguel Cabrera, the Tiger Slugger became just the 33rd member of the 3000 Hit Club on Saturday, April 23rd. A textbook opposite field single of Rockies right-hand pitcher Anthony Sensatella, making him only the seventh player with 500 home runs and 3,000 hits. Unlike last year when Mickey hit his 500th home run in Toronto, uh, this time he was able to enjoy it with his mother, wife, and kids in front of the Loyal Tigers fans of Comerica Park. And, you know, congratulations. Just an amazing player that Biggie turned out to be. Uh, there have now been 23, 3,000 hitters in my lifetime. Uh, the first one I remember was Yaz in 1979. So I've personally, personally seen 19 of them. And i got to tell you, it just never gets old. Jim out of Salem, Oregon. He dropped me a message as soon as Cabrera hit that mark, and he asked me a great question that I don't think I've ever been asked before. Uh, he asked me, what is the first thing I think of when I see a batter collect his 3,000th hit? That's a great question, Jim. The first thing I personally think of is Clemente, the bar, the motherfucking standard. To be in this club right here, you have to at least match the great one, Roberto Clemente. Thanks for that question, brother. That's a really great question. Okay. And now let's uh, let's bring it in. Let's discuss this week's topic, the history of Wrigley Field. 
And we haven't talked about a stadium for a couple months now. The last one I did was the uh, the fascinating history of Fenway Park in Boston. And if you haven't heard that the Fenway Park show, it's in my archives vault. You can always check out my shows on my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. And people ask me all the time what my favorite show is. And for me, so far, it's probably Fenway Park. Uh, the Amazing History of Duffy's Cliff, The Green Monster, all the fires. I mean, it's really interesting stuff. And i got to be honest, I really, really enjoyed the research this week. And Wrigley and Fenway have many similarities, but they are so diabolically different. Now, if you remember that Fenway show, I said I would start with the oldest stadium in the league, Fenway, and go all the way up to the most modern stadium, which I believe is now Globe Life Field for the Texas Rangers. And I promised you I would, I'm would. i going to do 28 of the 30 MLB stadiums. But I, I look, I refuse to do the research on you know that mausoleum out in Oakland, Alameda, and the trop down at Tampa San Pete. I, I'm not doing it. I love baseball, but not that fucking much. Uh, fix your crib situation, then we'll talk about your new stadiums. Thankfully, we are still, in regards to Backwards K-Pod, in this like stadium golden age. You know, like my favorite age, the, the jewel box age. As there are literally only, there's only seven Major League Baseball stadiums left that were built before 1989 that are in service today. And one of those, of course, is Wrigley Field. So, back to Wrigley, which was built two years after the completion of Fenway Park. Like Fenway Park, that is nestled in the neighborhood known as the Fens, the Cubs' home is situated nicely in the Lakeview community, now known as Wrigley Field. And one thing I found in my uh, my research was that I couldn't nail down what year Wrigleyville was. Uh, maybe someone in Chicago would know this answer, and maybe you could drop me a line, uh, backwardskpod at gmail.com. But it is called Wrigleyville. I just couldn't find out when it started, when it was when it officially became that name. Uh, Chicago City boundaries, they're, they're always changing. But city maps that I saw, they recognized Wrigleyville, bounded on the north by Irving Park Road, in the west by Southport, on the east by Sheffield Avenue, and the south by Addison. And this area was once a vibrant home of Native Americans, such as the Miami and Illinois tribes. And it is no doubt that the name Chicago is of Native descent. Now, there are plenty of theories as to the meaning of the word. One theory is it was named after a chief, Chicago, who drowned in the river that would later be named Chicago River. The generally accepted theory states that the Miami and Illinois tribes, they tend to name the areas of nearby. And the natives named the territory after plants nearby, and they named this part of town Chicaqua, which means smelly onion. And they would name, like, territory after plants because that would be the best way of telling the locals where to go get your plants, right? Where to get your, your food, your gathering, your onions, and stuff like that. 
Uh, the system was especially prevalent in Algonquin languages because, you know, like I said, it reminded locals what plants grew where, and therefore it made an easy reference when gathering food. Now, in 1687, French explorer Henri Joutel, he made a journal entrance stating that he had found a place known as Chicago, where smelly garlic grows in the wood. Wrigley Field sits on the site of the former Chicago Lutheran Seminary, which was established in 1874. It was, in those days, a tight-knit, God-fearing, blue-collar town. However, around the turn of the century, the surrounding neighborhood was expanding at an amazing rate. And this was due to the construction of the Addison L train station. And because of this influx of people moving into the neighborhood, the seminary folks, they moved out in 1910, leaving the Lakeview property pretty much deserted. Wrigley has seen the babes called shot, Gabby's Homer and the Gloman, the curse of the billy goat. It was the stomping grounds of guys named Hack, Three Fingers Brown, the Mad Russian, as well as the Mad Dog, Mr. Cub, Rhino, and the Hulk. And it's best known for its foliage and its bleacher bombs. For decades, the stadium, it refused to evolve. It became a symbol of baseball as it was once meant to be played. Much like Fenway, it is like this living, breathing baseball monument where fans can cling to their ideas of what baseball history really means to you on a personal level. Now, I've been to Wrigley once. That was back in 1989 after I graduated United States Navy Basic Training in Great Lakes, Illinois. I saw the Cubs play the Expos, and personally, it's so long ago, I don't even think I appreciate it as much as I did, even though I loved being there. I remember feeling like it was like traveling in a time machine, you know, watching the game there. Um, You know, it's just an amazing building. It has been immortalized in song, art, movies, and it's a must-see attraction in a city that's full of must-see attractions. And since Wrigley is like a veritable time machine, I want to take you, the audience, back to 1914 when this incredible structure was born. Woodrow Wilson is the President of the United States. His wife Ellen would die that year of Bright's disease, which is an inflammation of the kidneys. Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria and his wife Sophie were murdered in the streets of Sarajevo, Bosnia, Herzegovina by nationalists triggering the cataclysmic Great War. Um, In pop culture, radio was the new technological rage in 1914. Tarzan of the Apes was published by author Edgar Rice Burroughs. And Charlie Chapman would grace the screen and his little tramp character. And we're like six years away from Prohibition. So, with that backdrop in mind, this is when this baseball cathedral begins to sprout up on the north side of Chicago. Now, originally, the park wasn't built for the Cubs. The stadium was actually built for the baseball team that played in the Federal League. And that team was called the Chai Feds. And they originally played in Chicago's West Side Park, which was a heavy timber and wood-dominated structure. In 1914, after the Lutheran Seminary Centers and the inhabitants left in Moss, the land was acquired by the Shy Feds owner, Charles Wiegum, a successful restaurant tour, and he was like this visionary. 
And after seeing these revolutionary jewel box stadiums go up in Boston, Detroit, and with their crosstown city rival uh, White Sox in Comiskey Park in 1910, Wiggum decided he wanted a jewel box stadium in the Lakeview neighborhood. Now, if you heard the Fenway Park show here on Backwards K, I explained that a jewel box stadium is a reference used to identify stadiums built in between the Wood Stadium area era, which is pretty much everything before 1909 and the modern multi-purpose stadium era beginning around 1923. The Jewel Box Ballpark was usually a two-tier grandstand design. It was reinforced with steel structure supports, and they were often squeezed into, like, these city neighborhoods, uh, creating, like, this intimate atmosphere outside of the venue as well as inside. And there are only two Jewel Box stadiums left in the majors today. I told you that on the other show. One is Fenway Park, and the other is Wrigley. Now listen to this, folks. The project broke ground on February 23rd, 1914. The 14,000-seat single-tier stadium of steel and concrete was completed exactly two months later at a cost of $240,000. Now, in the 2020-22 economy, $240K is worth around $7 million. The stadium design was the vision of brothers Zachary and Charles. Uh, Comiskey Park, the Jewel Box Stadium in South Chicago, was the brainchild of Zachary, and Wiegum was hoping that they could recapture that magic on the north side. And upon completion, the stadium was named Wiegum Park, after the owner, Charles. I find that fascinating, that they were able to break ground and get that stadium done in two months at a cost of $240,000. There, I don't think that that's possible to do that today. You know, the money being relative and all. I, I just don't think that they can do that that quick today. There's going to be red tape. There's going to be government influence. You know, it's like this would never happen today. Now, the grandstand on the Clark Street side extended halfway down the left field line. The grandstand on the right field line along Addison Street extended all the way to the right field corner. And one of the old seminary buildings overlooked Wiggles Park left field area until it was demolished after the 1914 season. And when they demolished it, they replaced it with a section of bleachers. The houses on Waveland Avenue beyond the left field wall and the ones on Sheffield Avenue that sit behind the right field wall, they remain remarkably unchanged for the most part. Uh, the first game played in Wiggles Park, and it happened on April 23, 1914, over 108 years ago, the Chiefs defeated the Kansas City Packers by a final score of 9-1. to uh, The Federal League was in its first year of existence, and they were in direct competition with the more established American and National Leagues. The North Chicago team was known as the Federals or the Chiefs, like I told you earlier. After the second place finish in the Federal League's inaugural season of 1914, the team officially changed their name to the Wales. And after the league folded in 1915, Wiggum and a consortium of investors, they brought the Crosstown Chicago Cubs, who at the time were playing in Westside Park, and they would move their operations to Wiggum Park. The Cubs played their first game in their new crib on April 20th, 1916 as the Cubs beat the Redlegs in 11 innings. Wiggum earned the favor of his fans by becoming the first owner to let 
fans keep baseball hitting the stands. Many people may not know this, but back then, all balls came back to the field, whether it was a home run or a foul. And Wiegum was the first person to buck that trend. He also had a genuine cub bear in a cage directly outside the park on Addison Street. And one of the craziest baseball games in the history of the game took place in Young Wiegum Park on May 2nd, 1917. Cubs hurler Hippo, Hippo Vaughn and Fred Tony of the Cincinnati Redlegs, they both threw no hitters in nine innings of ball. In the top of the 10th, Hippo retired the first two batters. I'm sorry, the first batter. And then he gave up back-to-back hits, resulting in a run. Tony set the Cubs down in order, securing the win and the no-no. And at that time, the game was considered a double no-hitter. But under the current rules we have now, only Tony is given official credit for that no-no. In 1918, Wiegum began having financial issues. And he would begin selling off his team's shares to chewing gum magnet and partner William Wrigley Jr. By 1921, Wrigley had brought out all the other minority shareholders, and he now had complete control over this team. The ball ballpark that had been known by various times as Wiegmans Park, Northside Ballpark, Federal League Ballpark, and Wales Park was now being called Cubs Park. In 1927, the stadium would be officially known as Wrigley Field. Now, baseball wasn't the only sport played in the Winter City. In 1921, Papa Papa Bear George Hallis and his fledgling Chicago Staley football team, they played their first game at 1060 West Addison Street. In 1922, the Staleys would change their names to the Bears and become a wintertime fixture in Lakeview for the next half century. The first NFL championship game ever played was held at Wrigley on December 17, 1933, between the Bears and the New York Giants. And behind the ground control game of running back Red Graves, fullback Bronco Nagurski, Coach Hallis led the Bears to a 23-21 championship victory over the Giants. Uh, The Bears would move into their current stadium, Soldiers Field, in 1970. And, folks, listen to this. This is one of the greatest trivia answers of all time. And I'm sure people in Chicago know this, but I guarantee you, if you walk up to someone and ask them this question, 95% of those people are not going to know the answer to this. Wrigley Field has housed more NFL games than any other venue, and that includes Lambeau. That's amazing to me. You go up to somebody and ask them what NFL, what what's, what venue has housed the most NFL games, and I guarantee you, ninety five percent of those people are not going to say Wrigley Field. Most of them are going to say Lambeau. Now, as far as Wrigley William Wrigley is concerned, he was never frugal with the loot when it came to reinvesting in the stadium. The grandstand was now double tiered by opening day, nineteen twenty eight. New bleachers were added from the corner of right field to center field, increasing capacity from 18 grand to 32. And another problem Wrigley addressed was reorganizing the service side of the business, in particular with the ushers. Now, back in those days, 
organizations with just send representatives out in the streets on game day to recruit random men and boys to stand in as ushers. Fans would often have to deal with disorganized appearances and surly attitudes. And often these ushers, they weren't very reliable, as they would often keep the best seats for themselves and their friends. And of course, you had to think there was a lot of corrupt bribery going on from fans looking for better seats. And what happened is a gentleman named Andy Frayne approached Mr. Wrigley, and he told him he could do a better job at organizing the approach of the aisles. He had enjoyed success working uh, at Chicago Stadium during Blackhawk hockey games, doing the same thing. And the intrigued Wrigley hired Andy and immediately changed the stadium service industry forever. A little shot out to squints there. He outfitted a whole new staff, no more recruiting with the traditional blue and gold uniforms, and he instructed them how to act professionally and courteously. Andy Frayne would later expand his services to ballparks, stadiums, and arenas all over the country. And the company that bears his name is still a force in the industry today. And I got to imagine that those ushers are some of the most professional around. I have a good friend, Chanel. want to give her a shout out. She's an usher for the Cubs. I know she's a hard worker and she's a very courteous young lady. And I know she's ready to help you at any chance that she can get. Now, the Cubs had gone to the World Series in 1918, losing to the Red Sox in six. But the team finished in the second division for much of the 20s. And despite the mediocre play, the Cubbies were developing a legion of loyal fans. Thanks in part to marketing savvy the marketing savvy of Wrigley. The Cubs were one of the first teams to take advantage of the new technological range of the age, radio. Most teams feared that radio broadcasting games would have a detrimental impact on the gate, but Wrigley, always a visionary, he had the foresight to see that Cub games on the radio could be a powerful marketing tool. He also realized that due to uh, a lot of these mostly day games, a lot of housewives Listen to the game on the radio. So he came up with the promotion Ladies Day games. And that drew scores of fans, and it became a staple at Wrigley for years. The summer of 1927, the first year under the name Wrigley Field, the Cubs drew over 1 million paying customers, becoming the first stadium in the National League to accomplish that feat. In 1929, Wrigley and team president William Veck, they put together a dynamic and colorful team that won 98 games. Taking the National League crown, they were managed by Joe McCarthy. The Cubs were led by this fantastic outfield trio of Kiki Kyler, Reg Stevenson, Rig Stevenson, and Lewis Hack Wilson. Uh, combined, they had 355 combined, and each of them drove in over 100 runs. They also had a uh, 33-year-old Rogers Hornsby, who in his last great year as a player blasted 39 dongs. 149 ribs with a 380 batting average. And the pitching staff featured 19-game winner Charlie Root, 18-game winner Guy Bush, Guy Bush, and Pat Malone, who led the NL that year with 22 wins. And the 1929 World Series was the first one ever played at Wrigley. Their home games in the 1918 series versus Boston were held 
uh, in the uh, south side at Comiskey Park because, you know, they had a higher seating capacity. And if you remember, I told you how the Red Sox and their Boston Crosstown team, the Braves, they traded venues in their World Series runs in the 1910s because of basically who had the bigger capacity at the time. And same exact situation here. As great as this Cubs team was, they got trounced by Connie Mack and his Philadelphia Athletics. Uh, the A's, they had a team of future Hall of Famers and Mickey Cochran, Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons, Lefty Grove. And they were going to beat the North Siders in five games. In 1930, Hack Wilson would orchestrate one of the best seasons by an NL player ever when he batted a then NL home run record with 56 while batting 356 and driving in 191 RBIs, a record that still stands 92 years later. With the passing of William Wrigley Jr. in January of 1932, Philip K. Wrigley, or PK, as he was officially known, would take over the reins of ownership. And one of the major reasons Wrigley has uh, survived over 100 years later is this incredible care and love that's been given to the stadium by Wrigley Jr. and his son, and even Charles Wiegman. Now, whatever PK's deficiencies and shortcomings were as an owner, it cannot be denied. He was a clever marketer, maybe even more so than his father. He understood the value of Wrigley Field, even during mediocre seasons. (laughs) Especially during mediocre seasons. Uh, Every year, she got a fresh coat of paint annually, and the crib was kept in, you know, this immaculate condition. The Cubs made it back to the Fall Classic in 1932 for a matchup with the Yankees for baseball supremacy. And that series was highlighted by maybe the most debated and dissected event in World Series history. The Babe Ruth called shot. The story goes that in the first two games, the Cubs were bench jockeying George Herman relentlessly. And Ruth, who had already dropped on and Cubs pitcher Charlie Root, uh, lips earlier in the game, he'd had enough. Uh, the film, it reveals that there's some kind of jarring between George and the Cubs bench when all of a sudden the Bambino says something and makes a hand gesture. Some witnesses say he was merely pointing at the Cubs dugout. Whatever the case, Ruth dropped an estimated 490-foot bomb that carried to the right of the scoreboard, sailing past the temporary bleachers that had been built just beyond the alpha wall. It was Babers' last World Series home run. As the Yankees got it, former Cubs manager McCarthy, and they swept the Cubs in four. Now, uh, the main entrance to Wrigley Field, it prominently features a marquee, and that's at the corner of Addison Clark, with the words, Wrigley, Wrigley Field, home of the Chicago Cubs. And it was designed by the Federated Sign Company. For decades, it was blue with white lettering. But in 1963, the color scheme was changed to white lettering on a red backdrop. In 1937, a significant rebuilding project took place in the outfield bleacher section. A new brick wall uh, ringed the entire outfield. And... I love the way that outfield is set up down there. Uh, if you look at Wrigley from the top down, the outfield wall is shaped like a, a domino. It's a really cool layout that they have out there. 
Now, the bleachers out there, when they did this new brick wall out there, the bleachers were raised and expanded. Uh, they used to be a field level, but now they can be elevated to, the, the, to what you see now, the current height that you see them now. Uh, the ground crew, the grounds crew, they kept all their mowers and rollers and chalkers uh, beneath those bleachers out there. And you can still see those metal doors on the wall. Those doors used to be maroon, but they were later painted green. Another part of this project was building the 27-foot by 75-foot hand-operated scoreboard over the centerfield bleachers that we still see today. And fluttering atop the impressive structure is 15 NL flags showing the day's standings from top to bottom. Uh, another enduring scoreboard tradition is the raising of a blue W when the Cubs win and a white L for a loss. The flags are visible throughout Wrigleyville and it harkens back to a time, you know, before real-time news and updates in the palm of your hand when those flags were as close as you got to real-time sports information. Those flags also serve another purpose, and that's keeping track of the prevailing winds off of Lake Michigan, as you heard in the song before the show. Uh, you definitely want to have the information of which way the wind's blowing in that building. Uh, and in 1941, the scoreboard added the same clock that you see today. Now, that hand-operated scoreboard, there's a lot of things that are similar about it with Fenway. Uh, once you go in, you cannot leave. you got to stay there for the entirety of the game. Uh, when it's 95 degrees outside, it's 110 inside that scoreboard. On opening day, when it's 60 degrees, it's about 50 degrees in that scoreboard. Uh, it's always 10 degrees hotter, 10 degrees cooler. Now, uh, a little, little known crazy little trivia fact here. No woman has ever worked inside the Chicago Cubs scoreboard. And uh, I'm going to tell you, you probably think, you know, well, they're too smart to work in something like that. Well, that may be the case. But there's also another reason. And uh, they just ain't got the right plumbing. You know what I'm saying? Because if you got to go to a bathroom inside that thing, let me tell you what they got. They got a long CVP pipe that runs up the wall. And inside that is a hose. So I'm going to let you figure out the mechanics there. Obviously, a woman is not going to be able to work, nor will she want to work in that kind of situation. In 1937, Bill Veck, the son of former team president William Veck, who died in 1933, he came, in, came up with what he said he dreamed about ever since he was a kid, an ivy-covered baseball wall. Vic would later say that he and the groundskeepers, they planted the mix of bittersweet and Boston ivy one night, by the lights emanating from incandescent bulbs strung along the outfield wall. And the rest would become horticultural history, as the ivy is probably the most endearing quality of Wrigley Field. In 1942, Wrigley Field was prepared to install lights for, for night games. P.K. Wrigley, who was never a fan of baseball to the stars, but in order to increase attendance, he figured, what the hell, we'll give it a shot. And the club had attained the light towers. They were sitting under the stands, just waiting to be erected. Unfortunately, on uh, December 7, 1941, a date that will live in infamy, when the United States was deliberately attacked by the Empire of Japan at Pearl Harbor, P.K. Wrigley instead donates these lights and metal towers to the, to the war effort. Uh, 
and he promises that night baseball would never happen in that park that bore his name as long as he was alive. And his words would prove to be prophetic. One of the most legendary side stories of Wrigley is the curse of the Billy Goat. In 1945, the Cubs made it to the World Series, faced the Detroit Tigers. A local bar owner, Billy Cyanus, he buys a ticket to the World Series for uh, him and his prized Billy Goat. And as they're making their way to the seats, some of the nearby patrons, they, they complain of the smell of the animal. The goat and his escort were shown the exit. And as Cianus sat outside the stadium, his anger is blowing over and he curses the team, blah, 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 blah. And I told him, anyway, I don't believe in curses. Nothing is predestined. But it's a big story in relation to Wrigley. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. And after all the research into this show, it would appear that the golden age of Cubs baseball was from 1929 to 1945. During that seven-year span, they went to five World Series. Unfortunately, they lost all of them. From 1926 to 1938, they led the NL in attendance eight times. After the 1946 season, the Cubs would not sniff 500 for the next 16 years straight. If 1929 and 1945 were the golden years, then the decades of the 50s and the 60s were the aluminum foil years. Uh, the attendance was in the toilet. PK was no longer keeping Wrigley in like this pristine condition. The Cubs were becoming irrelevant in Chicago as the Go-Go White Sox were World Series bound in 1959. Bill Veck was now the owner of the White Sox and had a strong marketing skills as well. And from 1951 to 1965, Comiskey Park drew over a million fans every year but one. In 1962, the Northsiders lost 103 games, even more than the expansion Houston Colt 45's team, and they finished ninth. And they were led, listen to this, by P.K. Wrigley's College of Coaches, an eight-man committee, in lieu of a full-time manager. Sure, because, you know, uh, you know, when, when you're on a, a naval battleship, you want eight captains. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what is this? On September 21st, 1966, only 530 people showed up at Wrigley Field. The Cubs had officially hit rock bottom. But in these, uh, in the midst of these quiet years, an interesting phenomenon happened. A small group of young fans began to populate the bleacher section. And they were loud and vocal for the Cubbies, heroes as well as ob obnoxiously uh, derisive to the en enemy. And game out, game in, game out, the group just kept getting bigger and bigger as it was becoming like this alcohol-fueled party out in, the, out in the bleachers. By the beginning of the 70s, many of the older members in this group had moved on, but, you know, a, the, a more louder and more colorful generation took the reins. And as the numbers grew, so did the legend. They were, uh, they were dubbed the bleacher bumps. Fans who seemed to make all the daytime Wrigley games. And with that, people begin to ask, don't these people have jobs? Don't they go to school, anything? And that is how they became the Bleacher Bumps. And even manager, Cubs manager Lee 
Elia once had some harsh words for the bleacher bombs. I'll tell you one fucking thing. I hope we get fucking hotter than shit just to stuff it up them 3,000 fucking people that show up every fucking day. Because if they're the real Chicago fucking fans, they can kiss my fucking ass right downtown and print it. They're really, really behind you around here. My fucking ass. What the fuck am I supposed to do? Go out there and let my fucking players get destroyed every day and be quiet about it for the fucking nickel nine people that show up? The motherfuckers don't even work. That's why they're out at the fucking game. They only go out and get a fucking job and find out what it's like to go out there and a fucking living. 85% of the fucking world's working. The other 15 come out here. The fucking playground for the cocksuckers. Motherfuckers, rip them fucking cocksuckers like the fucking players. And <laughs> and that's how they got the name Bleacher Bombs. I mean, people were like, "Don't you have a job? Don't you go to school? You know, you gotta." It's daytime games. How are these people always at these baseball games? And the Bleacher Bombs, they they had many games they played while they were waiting for the games to start. One of these games was called the Bleacher Races. One guy would stand on top of the wall by the right field pole. One would stand by the left field pole on top of the wall. And a girl would stand in the center field wall by a scoreboard and one hand a napkin and one hand a beer. And when the woman dropped a hanky, both participants would race along the top of the wall and the first to reach the girl won the beer. Now, every once in a while, you know, these people are... They're pretty buzzed up by the time they start doing this, right? I mean, you pretty much figured you got to be a little tipsy, even considering doing this. And every once in a while, these buzz participants, they, they might fall off the wall and into the stands. No harm, no foul. You blast a dude in the rib cages with a couple shots, and you push him back on the wall. And the race continues. But many people fell off of that wall onto the unforgiving crushed brick warning track of Wrigley. And after an infamous rowdy 1970 opening day in which several bleacher bombs fell onto the field, the Cubs installed a basket that angles out at 42 inches along the outfield brick and ivy wall. It is the only stadium in baseball where the ball does not have to leave the stadium to be a home run. The ball just merely has to land in the basket for it to be a home run. But those baskets... You know, the Cubs like to say, oh, yeah, we, you know, we don't want people throwing trash on the field. And, and you know, uh, but that wasn't really the reason why they did it. They did it because dudes were falling off the wall in bleacher races onto the field. And there are pictures. You can go to Google right now and you will see that they still do the bleacher races and dudes still fall inside that basket. Go look it up. It's crazy. Now. Philip K. Wrigley, he would die in 1970, four years later. The Wrigley family sold the team to the Chicago Tribune Company. Uh, that was for $600,000 in 1970. In 1984, the Cubs, led by Ryan Sandberg, came out of nowhere. They won the NL East that season. It marked the first time the Cubs had drew, drew over 2 million fans through the Wrigley turnstiles. And the Cubs met the Padres. They won the first two games, and with only one victory needed to secure both a berth in the World Series, the Billy Goat reared his ugly head, 
Garvey hits the home run. Durham misses the grounder. And the Fathers won three straight to take the NL crown. After the 1984 season, pressure to install these light towers at Wrigley emerged again. Wrigley was now the only team that did not have lights. And honestly, Tiger Stadium was the last team not to have lights before them. And they installed theirs back in 1947. So, you know, this is 1984 we're, we're talking about. They're like, you know, this is ridiculous. It's time for you to get lights. Well, the first game was scheduled for August 8th, 1988. You can easily remember that by uh, 8-8-88, if you ever get that trivia question. And they took on Filthy. Uh, Ryan Sandberg dropped a three-run dong in the first as the Cubs took a quick 3 nothing lead. But by the fourth inning, the heavens opened and it rained hard enough to delay and eventually postpone the game. And... It was funny. Nobody was leaving, and the Cubs were all out there doing belly flops on the wet tarp. Great night. So the official home opener was the next night when 36,399 fans showed up to watch the Cubs beat the Mets 6-4. And it's important to note that the lights run up and down the left field and right field lines and behind home plate. But Wrigley Field is the only stadium in Major League Baseball that does not have lights beyond the outfield wall. Another upgrade made necessary by the economics of the game were the 67 luxury box suites directly below the upper deck stands from foul line to foul line. A new press box was also built. In 1990, Wrigley Field hosted its first All-Star game in 30 years. It's only the third All-Star game in Wrigley history. And the American League is 3-0 three, uh, three and o playing at Wrigley, by the way. Uh, 1990, they won 2-0. 1962, American League won 9-4. And 1947, the American League edged them 2-1. In 2009, the Cubs and the Stadiums were purchased by the Ricketts family. And like the, Rig- the Wrigleys, the Ricketts invested back into the stadium. There were some strong objections by the neighborhood. Ultimately, though, most of the plan was approved, and a massive, massive jumbotron was unveiled over the left field bleachers in 2015. Another video board was in, unveiled as the Ricketts have sunk around $575 million into the restoration of Wrigley Field since taking ownership. Now, I did a little research on the town that is literally called Wrigleyville. Wrigleyville. And the first thing I think is, man, this really came close to being called Wiganville. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the second thing I think is, this is a really cool city neighborhood. You have great access to public transportation. You have a CTA red, CTA red Line L train. You got the 22 or the 152 bus connection uh, to get you around town. Lots of Uber. It looks like walking, biking, or public transportation is probably your best way to get around this, this section. Uh, you have great food spots and Do Right Donuts, Swift and Sons Tavern, Happy Camper, Wrigleyville Dogs, and Westtown Bakery and Tap. If sports bars are your thing, you can run over to Cubby Bears, Murphy's, Bleachers, Sluggers, and Vines on Clark. There are also hotels within a long fly ball the stadium, the Wheelhouse, the Inn at Wrigley, and Hotel Zachary. They all look affordable and pretty nice. And look, maybe some of you seamheads 
have uh, fantasies of leaving your significant other and the kid one day to live in Wrigleyville? Well, I got your hookup. However, you hear me. Studio apartments run from the mid $800 a month. I found one bedroom apartments as low as $1,200, two bedrooms at $1,500. The average Wrigleyville condo, it looks like they run about 500 k to buy, and it, and that's about the same that it would cost for a medium-sized house in that neighborhood. Uh, it has, like, the appearance of your modern, typical blue-collar Chicago neighborhood, and I may be wrong on that assessment. Again, I haven't been there since 1989, but that's the way I, I, I saw it through my research. I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, you can email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. But I got a good, chill vibe from Wrigleyville. It looks like living there keeps you close to the Cubs, the Chicago nightlife, CTA, public transportation, and, uh, you know, Lake Michigan. Like Fenway, she is a living, breathing baseball cathedral. And 2004, Wrigley was declared by... Uh, a, it was declared a city landmark, which means no changes can be made to her without city consent. She is destined to live at least another century. She is the birthright of every Cubs fan in the city. It's been that way for generations, and it will be like that for every person's lifetime who is hearing this voice right now in 2022. And I think this is where I'm going to wrap it up. Look, I could go on forever. Forever. <laughs> I could go on about these teams. It's never enough time. I, I know I didn't talk about breaking the curse and Bartman and Gabby's homer at the Gloman and the World Series Championship in 2016. But these are all things I will cover in upcoming shows. I really hope I did you right this week, Cubs fan. And I said it last week. Uh, Chicago has always been awesome to me. I don't know what it is. Every time I've ever done a podcast show, they are top three city and listens and downloads and I appreciate in fact I appreciate it so much I'm going to go from the north side cubbies to the south side socks I'm going to keep it in the city of Chicago next week as I talk about disco demolition night one of the craziest baseball promotions ever that went horribly wrong but hey that's another story for another pod there are plenty of reference materials out there on the history of Wrigley Field so, go out there and dig into it. Plenty of videos on YouTube. So much about this park that just screams baseball the way it's supposed to be played. Well, you know, except for designated hitters. That just looks wrong in Wrigley. Please remember to listen, download, and share. Backwards K Bod is available on all podcast platforms. Thank you for all your support, Chicago. And I can't wait to bring you Disco Demolition to you next week. And once again, congratulations to Miguel Cabrera. Way to get it done, brother. It's been an honor watching you, and I cannot wait to tell your story here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kids and they're sitting on the couch texting their friends for the last hour nonstop, by all means, take him or her outside 
and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day.